Welcome, Disciple Makers, and thank you for joining us. The Georgia Baptist Mission Board Discipleship Team, led by Scott Sullivan, exists to help churches take the next step toward becoming a healthy, disciple-making church. We've developed tools to help you, like the Watershed Principle, which identifies six main ministries needed to be a healthy church. The Spark Conference, a total church strengthening event that allows you to access keynotes and breakouts all year long for ongoing training in your ministry area. This year's conference features keynote speakers Fred Luter, Michael Catt, Todd Bolsinger, and Robbie Gallaty, as well as online and in-person regional events. Learn more at www.thesparkconference.com. We also have learning communities across Georgia to sharpen, encourage, and resource leaders personally and professionally. Find a community near you at gabaptist.org discipleship. Don't forget you can find our previous episodes on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and your favorite podcast platform. Now let's join today's broadcast or podcast. Thank you so much for engaging and welcome to our Georgia Baptist Discipleship family. We have one of the most high capacity father-son duos in the nation here with us, Jordan and Ernest Easley. Now, uh, Dr. Easley, Ernest Easley, is earned his bachelor's degree from Dallas Baptist. It has his master's from Southwestern Seminary and doctoral degree from Luther Rice. Ernest served over 31 years as senior pastor, and listen, his impact among Southern Baptists is immeasurable. His voice of reason and his wisdom has brought confidence and peace, helping to make decisions that have strengthened our Southern Baptist Convention for decades. And Ernest is also the very first professor of evangelism in the school's history at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, and he's now the teaching pastor at First Baptist Cleveland, where he serves with Jordan, his son. And we also have uh, Jordan Easley with us. He's the senior pastor at First Cleveland, uh, a friend of mine that we have met through a mutual friend. And after serving at some of the most influential ministries in the country with Long Hollow Baptist Church, David Landreth, Second Baptist Houston, Ed Young, First Baptist Atlanta, Charles Stanley, Prestonwood Baptist, Jack Graham, and he has earned his bachelor's degree at Dallas Baptist University. He's concluding his master's degree at Union, and he's also, and both of these guys are author of several books, and we're going to make sure that we put the links uh, to some of those books in the chat. Uh, and both of these guys are national speakers, and they've co-authored recently a book, Resuscitating Evangelism, and that's really going to be some of the dialogue that we have today. And Jordan has served local, state, national levels and continues to be one of the most trusted leaders and unifying voices in Southern Baptist life. Ernest Jordan, thanks for being with us today. Come on, man. It's great to be with you. I'm fired up about our time together. Absolutely. And, and welcome to our, you know, our those of you who are watching today. And I want to also say uh, just to you that a uh, thank you to all of our listeners, because we have discerned over the last few days that you guys have downloaded over 150,000 pieces of content from our site. So thank you for using this site. And if you have thoughts, man, we want to continue to serve you, the viewer, the listener. Now, here's a reminder, because we do have a pile of resources that we want to give away. So make sure that you comment and share today's link. And if you do, you'll get entered into today's drawing for free resource. You'll that in that resource will be a hundred dollar gift card. And just maybe you'll get a spot in the new Sullivan family fire pit as we enjoy some s'mores 
over the next few weeks. So um, make sure you share and comment there. All right. So Ernest, I got to tell you this because you look, you've served high level decades, but now you're serving alongside your son. Like, is that weird for you? Is that fun? What's that like? No, it's fun. You know, what's great about it is I can still preach and train and do all the things I love to do without the headache of being the senior pastor. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the question is, is there ever a headache between the two of you? You know, we've never had a conflict. Wow. You know, not every father and son can do this. You know, I mean, you've got to, you've got to uh, uh, be um, the same thinking doctrinally yeah. and directionally, and and we both are. Yeah. And so it's it's not a conflict about where we're headed, how we're getting there. I'll leave all the details to him. <laughs> but but it really is a great experience. In fact. I really could serve with either one of my two sons. Yeah. Well, you've done a you've done a great job. I know a little bit about both of them, and they're both fantastic. Now, Jordan, what are your thoughts there? Having dad serve alongside you, and and I've got a little bit of experience here. Mine wasn't in the ministry world. My dad was a small business owner, and I worked with him. You know, high school, college, and I'll tell you that he and I did not work well together. So that's a special <laughs> thing. What are your thoughts? Man, for me, we get that question a lot. You know, do you guys ever have conflict? And we really, we've we've never had conflict uh, in ministry. Now, he used to whoop me a lot when I was a kid, but in ministry, we've never had conflict. Uh, Man, my opinion, honestly, I feel like, I feel like on most days I'm cheating because Mm -hmm. I've got my dad's office right next to mine. I think it's, it's almost unfair to other people in ministry. I feel like I've got a leg up on him because when you have that much wisdom on the other side of the brick wall, I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty remarkable gift, whether you're talking about uh, wisdom for a building project or uh, mining for diamonds for the next sermon. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, he's my cheat code in a lot of ways. And so yeah. it, it, it's a gift in ministry. It's a gift in life. It's great having uh, my parents here with our kids here. And uh, his mom lives here, man. They brought the whole family to clean up. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, it's one of those things where it's a gift. It's a cool season in life in ministry, and we feel really blessed. Super cool. Now, Jordan, let me let me jump into a question with you. And I do want to highlight the book here. So Resuscitating Evangelism, great book, guys. So we'll put a, a link to that in the chats. And, uh, and I want to start with the connection of evangelism and discipleship. And of course, you guys have been hearing this, you know, for years that you know, there's evangelism, there's discipleship, there's, you know, two wings on an airplane, that sort of thing. But the reality is the majority of churches are not handling this well. And so biblically, help me here. How do these two siblings learn to play well together without one overshadowing the other? Uh, man, I'll, I'll try to answer that um, maybe in a way you've never heard before. I, I don't look at it as siblings in the same family. I look at it as the same thing, really. I, you can't have evangelism without discipleship. You can't have discipleship without evangelism I, I look at it like this you put you played football so you know football pretty well you're from louisiana they, they play pretty good yeah. uh, not bad um well once a decade we do i understand that <laughs> but, but i look at it like this we as the church we we huddle together we huddle together we teach we we teach the word of god in that huddle we worship the lord together uh we have to huddle together and it's so important in the discipleship process. But at some point, 
every good team breaks the huddle mm. and they go run the play. Well, the play is the great commission. The, the play comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. And he tells us to go make disciples uh, all around the world, teaching them, you know, the great commission. And so part of the great commission, part of breaking that huddle is sharing Jesus with new people. You can't make new disciples without evangelism. So you share new, you share the gospel with new people, and then you invite them into the huddle as the church and you teach them the word of God and you teach them what Jesus says and you equip them for the work of ministry. Like it says in Ephesians chapter four, and then you break the huddle and that new team with new people is breaking the huddle and they're running the play that Jesus told us to play. And they're including more people from all nations, every tribe and every tongue uh, in this gospel story. And they're bringing them back into the huddle to teach them the word of God. So I see it kind of as, as just a, it's a process it's it's evangelism yes it's discipleship yes there's not a no uh the only the only way that you can mess this up is to abandon one of the two yeah uh, if you abandon the huddle i mean even a great team can only run a no huddle for so long sooner or later you've got a huddle you got to be reminded of what the plays are um and so you've got a huddle you got to run the play you got a huddle you got to run the play and that's just a part of it that's the way that i see it kind of working mm -hmm. together that's rich. And uh, and honestly, a lot of our churches, I would even say the majority of our churches haven't figured that out. And that's really where I was in Louisiana and Halton. You know, Gavin and I were there first five years. We added 1,800 people to the membership of our church. You know, the active grew from 250 to 700. But the second five years, we're still bringing in 179 a year, but we didn't grow. Like we're still averaging 700 after bringing in 179 people per year mm -hmm. over a five, you know, five year period. So we were an evangelistic church, but we, we, we were not a disciple making church, which led me to our, you know, disciple making strategy. So let me, let me just get a follow up here, kind of go off script for a second. Why are so many churches struggling to become what we might call a disciple making church, a healthy disciple making church? Because Y'all know from SBC life to what's happening in Tennessee is the same thing here as it was in Louisiana. All of our numbers are not in a, in a growth phase. They're in a trickle down phase. So why are our churches struggling so mightily to be a healthy disciple making church? Do you have any thoughts? Hey, let me jump in. You know, we, on a national level, uh, there is a, a great concern about the decline of evangelism across the SBC. It's been going on for 40 years. Yeah. And I forget the numbers, but I think it's like 0.03% of the decline every year. I mean, every year in, in baptisms in our convention. And, and you think about this, we got more pastors, we got more seminary trained pastors, we got more people in seminaries. We're better educated. We have more facilities. We have more resources. And yet we're doing less today in reaching people for Christ than we were back in the 60s. All right. Mm -hmm. So the question is why? Why the decline? Yeah. Well, if you'll go back and research it, the decline of evangelism and baptisms in the Southern Baptist Convention. It began when we started to uh, de-emphasize church training, discipleship making. Okay, yeah. so so the the, the it's an, it's a no-brainer. If you want to really grow in evangelism, you've got to grow in discipleship. 
is a second we step away from equipping and discipling. We're in trouble in, in our baptisms. Mm. So it's a, it's a perfect correlation between the two. It's real simple. So, you know, back, back 30 years ago, when the preachers would gather, the question would be asked, hey, how many did you have yesterday in Sunday school? That was the question asked. Mm. Well, today the question is, hey, how many did you have in worship yesterday? Yeah. Or how many views did you have? Yeah. 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 Or how many views? So, so the emphasis has shifted from the worship number uh, from the discipleship number. And, and we've got to get back to emphasizing that small group, equipping, discipling, if the trend is ever going to be reversed. Oh, that's just rich. I feel like I'm sitting in a in a, a mentor session here, Dr. Easley. That that's great. Now, you know, as I think about you know what you just said and in, in this morning, of course, I this this isn't going to air for another month or so, but this morning, you know, Russia invades Ukraine. And I've said before, because this is why this is so important, what you just talked about. The in my opinion, one of the things that was um showed such frailty in our American system right now was the church that put all their eggs in the basket of a come to a single location for a worship service. And that was the emphasis of everything they did. And everything else was okay, but the focus was what happened in the large group assembly. And based on what we saw this morning, man, if if the right people come together against the United States, listen, we're a powerhouse. But if the right people come together, there's a possibility we wouldn't win that war. And if that happens, our people are not going to be able to walk back in freely to a worship assembly. And my fear is how many people's spiritual life is going to fall apart because they're dependent on a human to give them the word of God. And gosh, I just speak so much to what you were talking about. And, um, you know, you guys, you guys um, know Bill Hull and you quote him in your book. And I'm fixing, fixing to interview Bill here in about two weeks for this broadcast. But he says this. So let's let's let me turn the page and go to this quote from your book. Uh, so Bill says, the gospel you preach determines the disciple you make. And you guys make a similar comment in your book when you write that, that many leaders are giving an anemic gospel presentation. Can you dive a little deeper here and help our un audience understand why and how it's important to give a clear gospel presentation? Yeah, I, that, that's a strong, <clears throat> it is a strong term, anemic an anemic gospel presentation, but I just think that there, there's, there's a generation of pastors, not, not to say that we're all in the same boat, but there's a generation of pastors who, who realize that we have to, we have to see a response. We have to see a response. People have to raise their hand. People have to walk the aisle. People have to be baptized. That's an expectation. And for some reason along the, the line, we have felt like, we felt like that falls on us when it really doesn't. And so I believe that there is there's a whole group of of pastors that have been trained uh, to do whatever it takes to to uh, evoke a response to 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 point to a person and to to lead them to making a decision. We feel like we're the closer. Yeah. So because of that, and I say that because really I was in I was in the youth, the youth ministry world for about 12 years and I saw that firsthand. Uh, speaking at conferences, speaking at events where 
I wasn't the only speaker. And now I've got other guys that are giving gospel presentations. And it's like, man, if you've ever felt bad about anything in your life, I want you to raise your hand right now. If you've ever felt guilty, you know, and and now you've got a lot of confusion. You've got a lot of kids who are making emotional responses instead of spiritual decisions. And, uh, and then the church has to come back and they have to clean that up in the, in the, in the future. And so, you know, we as pastors, we talk to people all the time. They're like, man, when I was a kid, I made a decision I didn't really mean. And I got baptized and I don't even know what that meant. And I did this because my friends were doing that. Well, that's not all on them. I think it also falls on the on the shoulders of the pastors who are doing whatever it takes to lead people to a decision. <laughs> and so that's that's why I think it's so important that we just tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Yeah. And, and we need to realize that we are not responsible uh, to be the closers. We are not the ones that can save anybody. And I think that we know that, but there's something inside of us, especially you start talking to somebody that's a number three or a number eight on the Enneagram, right? Like we mm-hmm. are going to see a, a result from these efforts. Yeah. Uh, I told, I told our staff at our staff retreat the other day, I, I said the, the verses that the Lord put on my heart this year, uh, come from Ephesians chapter three, verses 20 and 21. And the word more, is the word that we're going to embrace. And that talks about, you know, that, that God is able to do more than we can exceedingly abundantly more, you know, the first yeah. than we could ever think, ask, or imagine. And, and so I looked at our staff after having a banner year, we're a 168 year old church. We just had the greatest year in our history. And I said, but this year we're asking God for exceedingly abundantly more than we experienced this year. And you can see half the room started sweat. They're freaking out. They're like, oh my goodness, how are we going to do more? And the other half of the room was relaxed. And I just explained, I said, if you're freaking out right now, because you're hearing that we are expecting and believing for more this year, I said, you've got the source of more you've got the wrong source for more, right? You see yourself as the source of more. And because of that, when you hear that we're expecting more, you're thinking, I've got to do more. I've got to produce more. That's wrong. Yeah. God says that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. So I think if we get into a mindset and really a, a heart a heart place where we recognize that God is the source of more, he's just asking us to believe him for more, then we don't see ourselves as the closers. Pastors won't see themselves as, being on commission, feeling like we have to, we have to do whatever it takes to get them to walk this aisle. We don't. We have to preach the gospel and trust the Holy Spirit with the results of what we're preaching. And so when I talk about an anemic gospel, I think that term really refers to the youth speaker who will do whatever it takes to get somebody to raise their hand. Listen, we don't need students to raise their hand for Jesus. We need students to give their life to Jesus. Mm. And when students give their life to Jesus, that's when we see spiritual decisions turned into to uh, trajectory changing gospel, you know, gospel focused lives that are going to make a true impact for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. That's a great example of the Bill Hull quote that the gospel you preach is the disciple you make, you know, and, and brother, just a quick question here from your perspective of three or four decades, you know, watching this whole thing unfold. Do you feel like many times we as speakers, our identity is too involved and tied to the numeric result that comes from a service or comes from a service or, or a sermon or comes from, um, you know, growing a church? You know, just the idea that you said after three or four decades, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying, I, I, 
<laughs> I, I'm struggling here for just a moment. Oh, man. With, That's with that, awesome. With that comment of yours, which is true. Yeah. But it's piercing. How would you answer that? After nearly a half a century. Yeah, after a half a century. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> after seeing you know, all these years and decades. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, that is true. Okay, so the question is tying their identity with the results. Is that, is uh, that yeah. the bottom line? Listen, whenever you tie your identity with any part of ministry of what you do, you're in trouble. Mm. Okay, give an example. If a pastor's whole self-identity and worth is tied directly to a church or a ministry, when that ministry is over, he's in trouble. Uh, okay? I've seen it happen. Yeah. Our identity should be in Christ, in Christ alone. Mm. Well, there's a our whole book in that, isn't it? Yeah, our self-worth as preachers of the gospel, as pastors, it should be in Christ alone. Hmm. And when you're when your ministry, when your reputation, when your self-worth is linked to results, then you're setting up yourself for a fall. Yeah. That's really good. And I tell you what I'd love maybe to have y'all back on one day and talk about <clears throat> one of the biggest discussions that has to take place in Southern Baptist Convention is how we are measuring success in our churches. The, the ACP or ACR, however people call it, you know, they're measuring metrics. And I think we have what we measure, you know, focuses our, our leaders on, on what really matters because they begin to, it's kind of like taking the test in school. They prepare you for the test. And man, I'd love to talk because there's got to be some different metrics more than just worship Sunday school and how much money you brought in, you know, as we discuss, you know, what is really um, successful. So let me, let me, uh, let me roll a different direction here. Um, it may be Jordan, this is to you. I'm not sure which one of you wrote this part in the book, but it's, I was excited to see the language about the book um, that discipleship is meant to be exponential and ongoing. That was a quote from your book. And you also make the surprising claim that it's possible to disciple your church to death. So really interesting. Unpack that for us. And, um, and if you will, maybe give us a snapshot of what is your plan at First Cleveland to make disciples? Yeah, that's a, that's a, great, uh, a great quote that can get really taken out of context very quickly. So in that part of the book, we are talking about discipleship without evangelism training. We're talking about an inward focused. Uh, it's all us. We're a country club church. Let's just teach each other the Bible until we die and never actually apply the, the truth of what Jesus is commissioning us to do. And so the, the quote that says you can disciple your church to death, I wholeheartedly believe that. I've seen it. I've seen churches grow from here to here. Uh, and they're like, why? But, but the fact of the matter is, because they've embraced a model of ministry that's completely focused on, on, on inside the walls of the church, not even on their Jerusalem. Uh, you know, the Great Commission, when, when, when we're commissioned to go to our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and really to the ends of the earth, they never even talk about, they never 
you know, the word church is never mentioned there. That's not even really a part of it. I believe it's a part of it. I be, believe the huddle is important, teaching the word of God, worshiping together. But really, when we're commissioned to go, we're, we're not commissioned to go to church. We're commissioned to go to our city. We're commissioned to go to our region. We're commissioned to go to our state. We're commissioned to go overseas. And so the commission is putting, it's putting feet to our faith. Um, however, the church and the huddle is so important because that's where you'll learn to be faithful. That's where you learn how to, how to do the things that Jesus is commissioning us to do. And so the context of that quote, I will stand by that because, because if that's all you do, stay within the walls of the church and you can have great Bible studies and you can have great prayer meetings and you can have great whatever fellowships and food and all the fun you can have in church. But if that's it, then you're going to die. We see churches dying all across our country right now. Yeah. And we've done studies. You know, I had the privilege of, of leading a couple of studies with the young leader, the young leader group in the SBC. And man, we had 4,000 young pastors and leaders responding. And we saw that that was a that was a trend among a lot of our churches, especially our smaller churches that are on the decline. We asked them, you know, what are you doing to live out the Great Commission? And really living out the Great Commission is something that that very few churches are doing effectively. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of churches have figured out what fellowships look like. Man, we have got potlucks down. Like, I mean, it is a science in the SBC. Uh, but when it comes to actually putting feet to your faith, getting outside the walls of the church, that's where we have an issue. As a church, our church is uh, is pretty aggressive in living out the Great Commission. We put our, our money where our mouth is. And I'm not going to say we get this 100% right. We don't. Uh, but we're always looking for ways uh, to get involved in our community, our region, our state, and around the world. Yeah. Uh, just this past year, uh, this past year, we added a couple of international ministries. We started a ministry in Alexandria, Egypt. We're about to adopt a village in uh, Kenya, uh, in Nairobi, Kenya, where we're going to adopt 500 kids. And we believe by taking them food and water and the gospel, it's going to change and revolutionize that community and hopefully that region. Um, we're in Nepal. We're in about 40 different places around the world, uh, but we can't forget about our Jerusalem. So we launched a Mission 423. Mission 423 is 100% focused on our city. This past week, we started jail ministry in three local jails. Uh, my dad leads a group called Shepherds to Shepherds, where he's personally training 13 bivocational pastors in our own county. And so we believe by investing in the bivocational pastors, we're yes. investing in local churches. And as we invest in local churches, we believe that it will be a benefit to the kingdom right here in Cleveland, Tennessee. Man, I can go on and on. This yeah. past year, we gave over $1.2 million to missions. We, we don't do that because of an ACP. I promise you, I do not, I do not care about recognition. And I'm not saying this to pat us and pat us on the back. I just believe in it. I believe that yeah. uh, if we're truly serious about living out the great commission and we're going to, to be passionate about what Jesus tells us to be passionate about, we have to put our money where our mouth is and we have to be, we have to, we have to see the world like Jesus sees the world. And if we really do that, then we're going to support it financially. And so we as a church believe in that, but notice nothing I said to you has anything to do within the walls of the church. We have great worship. We got great potlucks. Uh, we will have church picnics until the day we die. But at the end of the day, that family is just going to be a family unless we do what Jesus tells us to do. When we do what Jesus tells us to do, a family turns into a mission board very quickly. And so we don't see our, we don't see our members as, as members or, or even just family members. We see them as missionaries. And if we're not doing our job to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
if we're not putting tools in their hand and really giving them the expectation that comes from the word of God that they should go, um, then we're not doing our part as leaders either. So, yeah. and, uh, you know, th there's nothing better than a good casserole. Mm. Talk to me. I mean, I'm just saying you, you've got to have a good casserole and, and we do casserole well. Amen. Uh, but but I'm, I'm afraid what happens on the discipleship to death issue is we're good at gathering our people together for a reason. We're not very good at scattering out of the building for a reason. You know, we, we, we train our people, and, and I think really it boils down to leadership. We train our people to gather here for equipping, but we don't teach them that we scatter out of these buildings for evangelism. You know, we gather for worship, but we scatter to be a witness. And, and we've got the gathering piece down, but we've got to help them understand that we scatter for a reason. And that is to be on mission for Christ seven days a week. Mm, that's solid. That's all. The two things we got to get better at, one is making disciples and the other one is making pecan pie. I mean, we got to find people who can make pecan pies. I don't know where they all went. Oh, they're in Texas. Them the whole time. Yeah, they're, they're in Texas. I agree. Yeah, that's a good place. Yeah. That may be where they are. We kicked them out of Louisiana, <laughs> I guess. Hey, um, and, and this may be, either one of you can jump in. In my opinion, the greatest failure in Southern Baptist life in my lifetime has been our inability to replicate ourselves. To, to make disciples that continue to make disciples. Um, and in that process, there's a, there's a, let me transition us to the role of the Holy Spirit, because it, that, that whole concept um, frustrates some people, scares some people. And you guys have a great quote in the book that says 58% of American Christians believe the Holy Spirit is not a living being. And I'd love for one of you, I don't know uh, whichever you wants to take this, but maybe a deeper dive here, because we need to have and we need to open the discussion of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role in the life of a disciple. If we're going to multiply disciples, multiply groups and multiply churches. What are your thoughts there on the role of the Holy Spirit in the life and responsibility of the disciple? Well, I'll jump in. Um, but first of all, there would be no salvation apart from the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Bible says he's the one that draws us hmm. to Christ. Okay. There'd be no witnessing without the Holy Spirit. I mean, the, I mean, God favored this way. And in bringing people to Christ, you know, God uses the word of God in, in, in people's lives. He uses the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives as he convicts them of sin, as he convinces people of the, of the truth of God's word. And then there's the witness of the believer. So together we form a team that God uses to help bring people to Christ. Uh, I think one of the great weaknesses of the modern day church is a lack of the filling of the spirit of God in a believer's life. You know, I, I think about that passage in Ephesians where Paul says, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm. Well, of course, a present tense verb 
it, it, it means it's an ongoing everyday event that should happen in our life. And, and the struggle is there cannot be a filling of the spirit until there's first an emptying of our sin. It can't fill something that's not empty. Mm, and so I'm afraid what happens a lot of time is we, we walk around trying to serve God with unconfessed, undealt with sin in our life. We're not spirit-filled. We're not spirit-controlled. And then we wonder why God isn't using us at a greater capacity to impact our workplace, our school campuses, our community uh, for Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a renewed emphasis on the spirit-filled life in the life of a believer. Gosh, that is, that's great. And I love the Greek word that you guys even address in the book, that pneos, I believe is how maybe how it said, a torrent like a tornado. Man, just a great reminder of the undeniable power of God's spirit. Now, this, this topic of the Holy Spirit scares some people. It becomes awkward. And, you know, even when we talk about the role in, in the Holy Spirit's uh, in our life. And I remember being a, in a, a lunch in a buffet 25 years ago. I got Methodist guy, assembly guy, non-denom guy beside me. Church member walks up with one of theirs and they introduce, hey, and this is the Baptist uh, pastor. And he's, oh man, well, I'll be praying you get filled with the Holy Ghost. <laughs> wow. and, um, and, I, and without thinking, Jordan, I just said, man, no worries, friend. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of this is if I weren't, man, I would have already hit you right square in the mouth. <laughs> Talked you right in the nose. <laughs> I did. I, and I just came out before I thought about it. Of course, he just, eyes got big. And he just started backing up, you know. Um, but it does. This discussion, it just gets weird with people. And I have a prayer similar to what you just said, Brother Ernest, is that we will be able to talk about it and be and live that spirit-filled life. Because, oh, my gosh, are the majority of our people not living in the power and the promise that God has, has already authored and talked about in Scripture here. Okay, so let, let's, let's boil this thing down. Let's get down some nitty-gritty here. We've heard lots about, you know, why Christians are not sharing Jesus, you know, why we're not making disciples, why why discipleship's not working well. So here's my question. What do we do about it? I'd love for you guys just for a moment kind of to close our time out, you know, uh, give us some nuggets. What are some things we can do to help evangelism, to make disciples, but that discipleship all being together? And y'all even use a strategy plus synergy plus systematic equals success if one of you wants to deal with that. Hey, before we do that, let me just say regarding the Holy Spirit conversation, the reason I backed up and let him go, uh, he's the professor here. I just got through preaching a whole series where I talked about the Holy Spirit, but 90 percent of what I preached, I learned from him. So I'm going to let him just be the content guy. In fact, I'll tell you this. (laughs) Hey, part of his role in our staff, he's kind of like the he's kind of like the pastor to our pastors. He mentors a lot of our younger guys. He also does something called Theological Power Lunch once a month where we take kind of a tough topic and he unpacks it for an hour and just kind of coaches up our our staff and from those he's uh we've in-house published some booklets based off of the content that he shares with our team Uh, and we're making those resources available to people who want them let me tell you about the two of the last ones okay this one right here i don't know if you can see that the filling of the holy spirit that's a whole booklet talking about the filling of the holy spirit uh, and, and it's great for people like me. I mean, I was raised first probably 15 years of my life. I thought the Holy Spirit was an it. I didn't realize the Holy Spirit's not an it. it it's a, it's a per, he's a person. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is a person just like Jesus. And just like, I mean, he is God. He's not only a person, he's God. And so the filling of the Holy Spirit and really seeing the importance of being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's a great study right here. And the second one is this, and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That, that's a booklet that really unpacks a lot of questions that we have in our world, our context. You, you may not realize this, Cleveland, Tennessee is the hub for the church of God. I mean, we are surrounded okay. by apostles who have very different views and understandings of what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit or be baptized uh, in the Holy Spirit. And so uh, that, that's a great study. And if, if anybody that's watching this wants a copy of that, we'll be happy to mail it to you. You just, yeah. have to reach, just reach out to, to him on Twitter uh, or or Instagram or send an email and we'll be happy to, to resource that. And that'd the be question, great. And if Charles could even send us maybe a link or, or an yeah, email sure. to, hey, send it to this, we'll drop it in the chat when this goes live. Great. The question that you asked was really regarding strategy on, okay, these are some things we got to change our focus on. These are some things we have to do better. Uh, but how do we do that? You know, one thing we say around here is strategy is our diligence but it's not our dependence. I Mm. think any good leader is going to be wise enough to build a strategy on how do we get from point A to point B? How do we get from where we are to where we know God wants us to be? Um, And so we have to figure out where, where the, where the gaps are, where are we missing it? And I think you got to focus on filling the gaps in a lot of different ways. If you look at your strategy right now and say, well, the reason we're not growing, the reason we're not seeing new people come to Jesus is because we're not equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We're not we're not intentionally training our people with an expectation that they should be sharing the gospel. Uh, well, I, I would ramp up your evangelism training. If it's, we're not seeing anyone baptized, we're not seeing children come to know Jesus. Well, I would focus on next generation ministry and figure out how you can really meet kids where they are, meet people at their point of need and share the gospel with them. Uh, man, we, part of our strategy several years ago was this. We just said, if we're going to put budget dollars towards an event, any budget dollars towards any event, we're going to share the gospel. And so we looked at our staff and said, hey, if you want to have an event, that's awesome. But that's on you. That's coming out of your salary unless you're sharing the gospel at it. We're not doing this just to do it. Once again, we're not just focused on inside the walls. We want to share the gospel so that people can be saved, discipled and mobilized for ministry. And so uh, that's one way a pastor can get a staff's attention pretty quick is to say, you can do whatever you want, but we're not funding it unless it's going to be centered around the gospel. And so uh, I, th- I think find out where your weaknesses are, find out where the gaps are in ministry, and then build a strategy to become more intentional in those certain areas. But at the end of the day, I'm going to say this again, strategy is our diligence as a leader, but it's not our dependence. We understand that strategy is never going to save anyone. We understand that we can't save anyone. We can be as smart as we think that we are. And we can do the things that we think we should do. But ultimately, if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, and if God doesn't intervene, uh, then it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be the result that you're praying for. And so, man, that just drives us to the source one more time. And now we've got a focus that's saying we want to position ourselves to be used of God. We want to position ourselves to see a movement of God. In order to do that, we have to be prayed up. Yeah. We've got to be people that are pursuing holiness and we have to be people that are meeting people at their point of need with the gospel message. And if we're unwilling to do that, then we can't expect to see you know, a different trajectory in our ministry or different results in our ministry. I think every pastor wants to see God do something, but I don't think every pastor prepares for God to do something. And I think part of that preparation is relying on the Holy Spirit to do something in us and through us. uh, And that starts with our personal walk with the Lord.
that's such a fresh approach, Jordan, because if our strategy, and I'm a big believer in strategy, like an yeah. intentional, if you're going to do it, be intentional about it, do it really well. But if the strategy becomes your dependence, then we're back to the programmatic approach. Yep. Uh, gosh, man, really good. Really strong. Uh, Brother Ernest, any thoughts there before I, um, before I give Jordan an opportunity, or I guess it's Jordan to tell us about his experience with OJ. <laughs> oh my gosh. Really? All right. I could hardly wait to hear that again. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, on a very practical level, and I don't mean this to be judgmental, but most pastors are not strategic thinkers. I mean, I mean, the average pastor in the SBC, he loves God, he loves the Bible, he wants to see people saved. He's doing all he can do with what he knows to do. That's good. That is so good. And I'm going to pause for just a second because that is not a slam. That is a reality right. that most of our leaders are not visionary leaders. They're middle managers. Right. And, and they're doing all these different things. You think about the one, one pastor in the church, the bivocational guy who's doing a hundred things. Yeah. Uh, that is so good. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to make sure we uh, highlight that. That is strong. Oh, no, that's all right. Well, I think knowing that, I mean, one thing that I try to do in helping train our bivocational guys, I get them for six weeks. And together we, we start thinking strategically which is something they don't normally do. And we put together a, a three and a five year strategy of how to do evangelism in their local church. And so I, I think helping guys think strategically, I think they, I mean, they can do that, but they need help thinking strategically. Mm. And once they begin to think strategically, in a three-year and a five-year window of time, it begins to make sense to them. Yeah. That's good. Man, thanks for sharing that. Um, and we're, we're about out of time, Jordan, but man, I read in your book, you're telling this story of meeting OJ and you're trying to share Jesus with him. Could you, could you say something a little bit about that experience and maybe any lessons learned there? I honestly didn't realize I put that in the book. I, I haven't read the book yet since we finished it. I didn't realize, I'm serious. I forgot that I put that on the book. So I don't know. What was it? Four years ago. I'm in, I'm in the Dallas, Dallas Fort Worth airport in the Admirals club. And I look over and it's OJ Simpson reading a fantasy football magazine. And I'm like, man, that's OJ. I got to talk to OJ. And so I took a couple of pictures, you know, on the smooth, you know, I'm over here like, you know, I'm like, yeah, giving him one of those. And he, I can tell. He can tell. He can tell that I'm, I'm creeping on him. Just a you're bit. being that guy. Yeah, but it's OJ, man. I'm like, I didn't know he was out of prison. To be honest with you, so I don't know. Something, something in me. I say something in me. I feel like the Lord told me I need to share the gospel with him, and so I strike up a conversation with OJ, and we have about, I don't know, ten minutes or so. We're talking about fantasy football for about five. And then uh, I started, I shifted the conversation to his spiritual life. And, and OJ told me that, oh, yeah, I've been a Christian my whole life. That was his response. And we've heard that from a lot of people. Well, yeah. I personally believe that OJ has not been saved his whole life. <laughs> yeah. Just something tells me that he's not walking with Jesus his whole life. But 
but we had that conversation about how really that's impossible, but, uh, but I told him just how he could be saved. And he just thanked mm. me for that. And I wish I could tell you, I led OJ to the Lord, but, but I didn't, man, I had some juice with the juice. We talked fantasy football, talked about Jesus. Uh, I had the chance to pray with him before he went to his gate. It was just one of those, those weird moments where you're like, man, Lord, what was that all about? But you know what I'm reminded of? I'm not responsible for the result. I'm just responsible to scatter seed. And when God tells me to scatter seed, I'm going to do it. You know, is, you, you know, Mark Cahill, does that name ring a bell? Yeah, you know, sure Mark? Does. you bet. So I was having lunch with him when he was writing his book. Uh, the one thing you can't do in heaven. I know this is for our book, but I would recommend his book <laughs> over my book because, because that one, that one principle of there's one thing you can't do in heaven. That's share Jesus with somebody. But in that book, he shows that, you're never unsuccessful in sharing Christ. How, you know, we think, man, if I lead them to Jesus, that's a win. If I, if I scatter seed, that's a win. If they reject me, that's a loss. Well, that's not true. He shows how, even if there's a loss, there's several scriptures in the Bible where it says, you know, if you're rejected in the name of Jesus, rewards in heaven are going to be great. And so he shows it's not a 66% chance of success. It's you're successful here, you're successful there, you're successful there. You're 100% successful 100% of the time when you share Christ with somebody. And man, that kind of changed my whole perspective. I'm like, if I can't lose, I'm going to do this. If I can't lose with the Lord, I'm going to be aggressive, especially when you're in moments like with OJ or a person, a person on an airplane. Like I say to myself, I'm never going to see them again, but God's going to hold me accountable for what I do here. Yeah. And if I, if I think to myself, well, I'm not going to do it because they may reject me or I may look like an idiot or I don't have enough time. What I'm doing is I'm saying no to what God commanded me to do. Mm, and so when good. I, when I was reminded that I can't lose, when I share the gospel, it changed, it changed my heart, changed my strategy. It really changed my life in a lot of ways when it comes to living out the great commission. But OJ, that was, that was a day, man. You got to meet the juice, right? That's What's awesome. Going? That's awesome. And I can't think of a better way to close our time out because we got to give folks Jesus we got to have an intentional plan to disciple them and then to launch them to replicate the gospel seed that we received or will never be a part, accomplish the great commission. Now, leaders, those of you who are watching, let me give you just one final thought as we close our time. My experience over the last 30 years in local church and now at the convention is that, that people don't share Jesus more often and they're not more passionate about making disciples because they're not convinced that hell is a real place filled with real people our family members, our friends, and our neighbors. And look, the majority of our unbelievers, they don't go to your church. They're in community. So I want to encourage you, get off your church campus like Jordan was talking about, and let's stop making excuses, and let's make a way. And as a wise man once told me, any method of giving the gospel will work if God is in it. And the Easleys have written a solid resource that I recommend to you all. Again, we'll put that in the link. So Ernest, Jordan Easley, thank you for joining me today and for being a fantastic encouragement to our listeners. Awesome, Scott. It was a pleasure, man. Yeah, thanks, Scott. You bet. Lana Melton, John Graham, thanks for producing today's show. And I want to remind our listeners that the only way we're able to do this broadcast is because you give to the cooperative program. So thanks for giving generously. And I pray that today's discussion with the Easleys will equip you to think deeply, invest intentionally, and make world-impacting disciple-makers. Thanks for listening. We want to continue the conversation from today's broadcast in a learning community near you. These learning communities are designed to celebrate your biggest wins, resource your greatest need, and help you finish well. 
We also want to give you a free gift. The five discipleship shifts most churches need to make to produce world-impacting disciple makers. You can download this resource by going to ministryboom.com. This five-page PDF is a discipleship alignment checklist. The Georgia Baptist Mission Board is able to provide resources like this because of gifts from Georgia Baptists to the cooperative program. For more information on this broadcast and a customized discipleship plan for your church, visit gabaptist.org discipleship. Engage with us on your time through Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and all podcast platforms. Lastly, if you've benefited from this conversation today, please share this with a friend as we seek to help churches make world-impacting disciple-makers.